This episode of the Trek Geeks Podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash trekgeeks, and you'll find over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or any MP3 player. Hi, this is Andy Robinson, Elam Garrick on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and you are listening to the biggest little podcast this side of the Gamma Quadrant. It's the Trek Geeks podcast with Dan Davidson and Bill Smith. Failure to tune in would not sit well with the Obsidian Order. It's a little show this side of the Alpha Quadrant. This is the Trek Geeks Podcast. Welcome, one and all, to episode number 29. We've got some special stuff on tap today, but first, as always, I want to introduce my podcasting partner and co-host. He's the daughter of the fifth house, the holder of the sacred chalice of Reeks, and heir to the holy rings of Beta Zed. He's the incredibly diplomatic and amazingly ambassadorial Dan Davidson. Dan, tell me what I'm thinking. You're thinking I'm a chick, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for thanks for that wonderful introduction, Bill. That was that was a good one, actually. I can't can't say I'm disappointed with that one. Unlike many of the others. Wow, really? <laughs> I have to say, I, I had uh, Netflix on earlier, and uh, Menage a Troy came up as I was watching ah. Next Gen. Yep. And that's what made me think of uh, Loaxana. Yes. Um, the late, great Majel. Yeah, definitely. She And she's fantastic yep. in that episode, too. But that's a topic for another time. Today, we're going to talk about a different production. And uh, Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's on tap today? Yeah, we are going to tackle one of the new, quote-unquote, fan productions that has uh, been recently released, Star Trek Renegades. Uh, they released it early on YouTube for everyone. Bill and I have had a chance to watch it uh, uh, a couple of times each, I believe, and uh, we felt that uh, episode 29 would be perfect to delve into a new area of Star Trek for us and uh, tell everybody what we thought. Okay. So, so there we go. And in the interest of full disclosure... Um, since Renegades is a fan-backed production, I actually was a donor to Renegades. Dan, I don't know, honestly, if you were or not. I was not. Um, to be honest, I did not know very much about a lot of these um, Kickstarters, Indiegogos, before we started really getting involved in this podcast. Um, so as a result, 
I got in the game a little bit late, and by that time there were other things that I was concentrating on and looking at, and I know that Renegades had been well underway by the time we started, so I decided to pass on it. So I did not donate to Renegades. Okay, but in the interest of full disclosure, I was. I did get early access to watch a rough cut a couple of months ago, and I did see the finished version a few days before everybody else saw it. But, Dan, you saw it with everybody else on YouTube. So yes. um, with that, we hope you'll sit back and uh, listen to episode 29 where we talk about Star Trek Renegades. Before we get started, just a quick note that this episode is chock-filled with spoilers. So if you have not yet watched Star Trek Renegades... Or if you don't want to know what happens yet, please stop listening to this episode of the podcast now. Um, otherwise, you potentially will have something spoiled for you, and then you'll be very upset with us, and we certainly don't want that. So um, if you haven't seen it, uh, please check it out now. Um, and if you have, continue on, and we hope you enjoy the episode. It's 10 years after the Starship Voyager's return from the Delta Quadrant, and the Federation is in a crisis. The main suppliers of dilithium crystals are disappearing, literally. Space and time have folded around several planets, effectively isolating them from any contact with outside worlds, using a device of unknown alien origin and technology. The phenomenon is not natural. It's being caused by a race known as the Siphons, and their ultimate goal is to wipe out the Federation and Starfleet. Fighting a threat so severe necessitates a change in tactics. For this, Admiral Pavel Chekhov, head of Starfleet Intelligence, turns to Commander Tuvok, Voyager's former security officer and current head of the newly organized Section 31. Tuvok must put together a new covert crew of mostly outcasts and criminals. Tuvok starts by getting the daughter of Khan Noonien Singh out of an Orion prison so she can resume command of her ship, the Icarus. Its crew is a collection of castoffs. A betazoid with psychokinetic abilities, a disgraced doctor, a shapeshifter, an unbalanced Bajoran, a Breen, a Cardassian prisoner, a tinkering engineer, and a former Borg who's been turned into a weapon by Section 31. Their mission is to get to the Siphon homeworld and stop Barada, their leader, by any means necessary before Earth is targeted next. In the meantime, the Icarus is also being pursued by Starfleet. The USS Archer, under the command of Captain Alvarez, is hot on their trail, and he's out to capture the Icarus and her crew. He has no idea that they're working on behalf of the Federation. Well, actually, no one does, and Lexa Singh can't risk blowing their cover. This is a mission that might as well have been a suicide mission. The Icarus crew is ambushed and several are killed. There's a conspiracy inside Starfleet. The Archer is caught up to the Renegades and the Earth... Well, the Earth has been cut off from its sun to wither and die by the Siphons. The only way to save Earth is to transport the alien device back to Siphon at just the right moment. The only problem is that someone will have to remain behind, meaning certain death. In the end, the Icarus's engineer sacrifices himself, unaware that he wasn't really real to begin with. He was an autonomous hologram, a representation of the doctor's former assistant who was accidentally killed in an experiment gone wrong. Well, the Earth has been saved, yet the crew of the Icarus is not out of the woods yet. It appears they've been framed, and neither Chekhov nor Tuvok know by whom. They'll continue to do missions for Chekhov, and he will do what he can to keep them ahead of Starfleet. And so the Icarus goes on its way, presumably to further adventures. 
So that's a very brief recap of, of what happens. We thought about going into a more detailed um, you know, uh, plot point by plot point, but we figured that would probably take up a good chunk of the episode since this is a, a 90 minute or so movie. Um, Dan, the first time you watched it, what was your initial reaction to Renegades? And then I'll follow up with, with mine. Um, I guess the best way to describe it was, unfortunately, I was very disappointed. Um, there had been a lot of discussion about Renegades for a long time. Um, a lot of big names. Teaser trailers look pretty good. But <clears throat> after watching it, I have to honestly say I thought it was kind of a mess. Um, I didn't I didn't really follow what was going on uh, very well at the beginning. Um, and I have to be honest and say I was disappointed. You know, I, I have to confess that as much as I was looking forward to it and and even I thought it was a decent idea if done correctly. I well, I think it's as best summed up. You and I got a text message from from our friend Chris that said yep. I'm a half an hour into this and I have no idea what the plot is yet. Yep. And that exactly. was kind of exactly how I felt. Um I felt like there were two competing ideals in this script. There's the Chekhov storyline and there's the rest of it. And I almost feel like the the Chekhov storyline doesn't fit the movie. It it doesn't propel the plot forward, in my opinion. Do you do you agree with I, that? I I one hundred percent agree. I think uh, to sum it up, we've been told in the past, and I think this this is a um, this is a a, a a sad part of of what Renegades is. We've been told in the past that bringing in the big names, the stars, the former Trek people does not cover up a bad story or bad writing. And I think, unfortunately, this is a perfect example of that. They got lots of great Trek people in here. We'll go over some of the characters in a little while. Big names. Didn't It didn't work. And, and I don't think – and I think the Chekhov piece, you could have had anybody come in and play the head of Starfleet Intelligence and it would have been the same, the same thing. You know, b- before we talk about the things that we, we don't think necessarily worked very well, there are several things that I thought were very good about Renegades. So I- I'm just going to talk about those first because I have a feeling that our our critiques of some of the, the finer points of Renegades are probably going to take up the bulk of, of this episode. Um, I thought that many solid performances were turned in by cast members in this film, but I think that ultimately the writing let them down. I mean, Gary Graham is always fantastic and on the mark. That guy nails his part in this movie right off the bat. Um, I thought that Tim Russ fell right back into Tuvok. It was almost like Tuvok had never gone away. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually liked what both Adrian Wilkinson and, and Manu and Ramey did. Um, I thought that even though Lexa wasn't given a whole lot to do range-wise, I thought that Adrian did it very well, and I thought that I thought that Manu did a really decent job of portraying the conflict that was within Icheb, you know, the being turned into a weapon and almost kind of enjoying it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, I will say the same thing. I, I I don't want to sound like every part of the movie I did not like. Individual performances, you're correct. There were several good ones. Unfortunately, individual performances and trying to mesh them into a a, a ninety minute film is going to 
is going to be a problem if it doesn't seem to gel correctly. I'll be the first person. You know me. <clears throat> I thought Vic did a great job as a Cardassian. He looks like a Cardassian when he has that makeup on. He has the crazy wild eyes. He reminded me of Garrick in a lot of the scenes that he was in. Um, so I thought he did a great job. I thought that even though the, the part was not necessary, I thought Robert Picardo did a great job as Louis Zimmerman. Um, but he, and didn't, he again, didn't really I do think, anything. That's what I mean. It was it, what he did was good, but if that he just stood there and talked for a couple of minutes, but he it was it was a good performance for that couple of minutes. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to jump in any there. I'm sorry, but I yeah. just thought no, that's fine. I thought that was wasted. There was no reason yeah. to have Picardo in that movie other than hey, we've got Bob Picardo. Yeah, sorry. I, exactly, exactly. Yep. Yeah, um, I will agree with you 100. percent Tim Russ, it was like he never stopped being Tuvok. Yeah, and I think that's one of the great things. After so many years, after Voyager has ended. He fell right back into it. Um, I also thought that for someone that I'd never seen before, I really enjoyed the Andorian Shree. She did a good job as uh, Chekhov's, I don't know what what to call it, agent that he brought in to do some uh, hacking work. I thought she did a pretty good job. I'd never seen her before. Um, and Gary Graham, like you said, Gary Graham's good in everything that he does, so that was good. But like you said, individual performances were good. Um, I did not. Uh, really think that the majority of special effects were good, but there were some that stood out as being fairly well done. Uh, what do you think about those? I thought that you know the visual effects, as far as ships and combat went, were actually kind of cool. I really liked mm-hmm. the redesign of the Klingon warships. I thought that was cool. I thought the design of the Archer was kind of neat. I yep. mean, it definitely looked like a Starfleet vessel. Yep. Um, we'll talk about the interiors in a few minutes. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Externally, um, I thought that the combat sequences looked very good. Um, although, me, I, yeah, go ahead. Let me break in one thing. One, you said the Archer. One of the things that I did like is they, the continuity factor. Having a starship called Archer. First time I think we've ever seen a ship called the Archer, which I thought was good. I know that in, I think it was, was it Generations? Where there was a US Ar- USS Archer on one of the uh, maps for a, for a battle scene or something like that, but Nemesis. we've never actually seen the Archer. It was a Nemesis. Nemesis, yeah, thanks. <clears throat> yeah, no, I thought that that was great, but the visual effects as far as buildings and everything else were terrible. I'll, I'll call right out and say it. Um, that opening scene where you see the mining colony and the fire mm-hmm. in front of it, it looked like a miniature set out of that old Thunderbirds TV series with the marionettes in the 60s. It... It looked completely fake. It took me right out of the movie when I saw that. And that's in the first two minutes. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first impressions are very important. And uh, you got to really come out with a, a big scene. Now, I don't want to com- – I'm not comparing by any stretch of the imagination. Take that first two minutes and take the first two minutes of the opening scene of Axanar, which was released a little while ago with just the ships in orbit of Vulcan. That pulls you in because of the special effects. And I think – that opening scene with Renegades in the first two minutes, like you said, took you out of it. Well, Perfect, I have, perfectly way to explain it. I have to say, too, the makeup looks amazing. They did a really nice job with the makeup. I thought that visually it looked like it fit on screen. Um, there was some problem with the siphons being yes. able to articulate words. Yep. Um, but overall, I thought their look, they were very menacing. I thought that I, I thought that the makeup overall was a de- was a great job. 
I did like the bones out of the hands for yeah. weapons. That was pretty cool. Um, but that was one thing that was distracting to me. Another distracting moment was the Siphon's facial makeup was so encompassing to the actor's head and their teeth and everything like that. It was hard to understand sometimes what they were saying. And you, it, it didn't look natural when they were opening and closing their mouth to talk. So I, I were there any other aspects you thought were were really good or spot on before we move on to to plot points? I the con like I said the continuity was good. I it's kind of a conflict when I say this. I like how they brought back people from other series. Tuvok, Icheb, Icheb, I always forget how to pronounce that. Uh Lewis Zimmerman. I like that aspect, but again, you're bringing in the big names. If it's a story problem, that's not going to help the situation. I did like that. The My biggest hole, so to speak, I just did not know what Walter was doing there. No, and I agree with you. And I don't know why he's 143 years old and looks younger, 70 years younger than Bones did in TNG. They can say that it was medical advancements or whatever, but that could have been any admiral. That yeah. could have been Janeway. Yep. It could have been Chakotay promoted to Admiral. It could yep. have been just about. It could have been. It could have been Owen Paris, right? It could have been Tom Paris's dad, and they could have had somebody else that he was dealing with, right? Um, and perhaps they could have worked in Tom and Bellana's uh, daughter. I thought that yep. would have been a good tie-in, but I think if they made it slightly more Voyager centric in that sense, that that aspect might have worked a little well and been a little more cohesive. Um, uh, otherwise, it just it didn't work for me at all. Right. I you this may be a point that you were going to bring up, but since we're talking about why was this person there, I'll, I'll bring it up now. How in the world is it possible for Khan's daughter to be the age she's in in this movie? Yeah, she looked like she was in her mid twenties, early thirties. What what's the scoop with this? Uh, that totally and and I don't know if they're going to explain that in a future episode, but to leave it wide open like that, I thought was a was a big plot hole. Yeah, you know, here's the thing. You know, you want to establish the character and and at least create some backstory, but I feel like they they didn't really do any of that. I mean, you yep. know, simply from Lex's fight with Garrus in the in the Orion prison that she's the daughter of Khan Noonien and Singh, but I'm sorry, Khan Noonien and Singh died in this timeline over a hundred years ago. Right. I, I, I and ah. yeah, exactly. I, you don't even know what to say, and I'm I feel the same way. I'm when I was listening to it, I'm like, okay, was it Mar, uh, Khan's wife from the Space Seed episode? Well, I think it was Lieutenant um, MacGyver's. MacGyver's, thank you. Um, is it her? But then they show the mother of her in flashbacks, and it's obviously not her. Who is this person? What planet were they on? Because it doesn't look like it was uh, SETI Alpha 5. Right. Um, I, it's, it's, it's so many questions that pop up. I, I totally don't understand why or how Lexa is the daughter of Khan Noonien Singh. And to me, this is a fundamental flaw of this script. If you're not going to explain something about your main character this early on, don't do it. I think this is a real misstep in the creation of this character. You can say she's the daughter of Khan, but unless you come up with a reason to explain it in-universe, it doesn't make me want to stay around. Right. Yeah, exactly. I have one quick question about Tuvok that maybe you can answer because I sure don't know the answer to it. Um, he's supposedly the head of Section 31 now. Mm -hmm. Why is he still a commander? 
why is he a commander? <laughs> why is he wearing a Starfleet tunic? Why is he wearing a purple tunic? <laughs> what the hell is that division? Since when do we just say, oh, yeah, he's Section 31. They're <laughs> secret. <it's> okay. <laughs> <laughs> They're a super oh. secret organization. They're like the worst than the CIA. <laughs> oh, God help me. I, I don't get it. I, yeah. I honestly don't understand. And see, this is – I'll tell you one thing. Nobody's going to accuse us of being kiss asses anymore. That's for sure. But these are all legitimate questions and concerns, especially if you're bringing something to Star Trek fans. They – we are the most anal fans of any science fiction or any genre. We want – we know the details. We know what's going on. And if we have all of these questions, we've only been talking about this for 15 minutes, 20 minutes. How many questions have we come up with? These that, – that, that's a big mistake if you don't have the – if you don't have answers to these questions. One of the other things I have to take issue with, and I apologize as a plane goes overhead in case anyone can hear it, is how Starfleet is portrayed in this movie. So the crew of the Icarus, the captain is hell-bent on – I'm sorry, the crew of the Archer is hell-bent on getting the Icarus to the point where the captain is, is ready to go into space that they don't have permission to go into. Mm-hmm. He's ready to hunt them down no matter what. Starfleet is apparently so incompetent that they have to get a crew of criminals and then they have to go engage in a mission where they're going to assassinate Barada. None of which fits in the Star Trek universe. Right. It's kind of like it's it's like regular 2015 United States covert ops. Yeah. As, <laughs> you know, since <laughs> when are assassinations part of Starfleet? And with some people right. say, well, it's part of Section 31. Yes, but Chekhov's the head of Starfleet intelligence. Right. Since right. when does this become the mission? Yeah. This doesn't really it, fit. And then the other thing I have is, well, it's it's kind of it's kind of cosmetic. <laughs> but in every other incarnation of Star Trek, uniforms fit. <laughs> yeah, that was that was. I don't know who was doing the wardrobe for this one. Maybe it's supposed to be like that, but in the future, I it, don't know. But yeah, it not, looks it looks sloppy. Yep, I get that they were doing this on a on a shoestring budget, but it looks like I made them, and I have no sewing abilities whatsoever. <laughs> Um, I noticed it on one scene in particular. Somebody, I think it was Alvarez, stood up and pointed at someone. And his sleeve, which was at his wrist, literally went up past his elbow, I think. Right. Uh, yeah. And the colors. What are the colors? Oh, let's, let's actually, let me step back. Bill, I want to I wanna ask you a real serious question. Okay. Can you describe to me your feeling of the com badge? I um I actually don't I actually kind of like the com badge. I think I it's kind of cool. I thought you didn't like it. No, I never said that. <laughs> oh, I thought you didn't like it. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> I thought in conversations you were saying that you didn't like. It. I must have been thinking of something else. No, I like the com badge just fine. Okay. I, uh it's the yellow walls that Starfleet <laughs> seems to be in love with that I really hate. In Starfleet headquarters and on the starships. Yeah. So, yeah. so Starfleet to me in this movie is portrayed kind of well as people less than at their peak. And Starfleet is supposed to be the home of the best and the brightest in some level. Right. You know what I mean? So yeah. I had a problem with that. Um, uh, yeah. So what else, what else doesn't work for you? 
What I one of the things that bothered me the most, and and it bothered me the most because I I get this feeling from time to time. It was way too claustrophobic to me. Yeah, you've got the bridge of the USS Archer, which looks like a pretty badass ship. It looked so tiny that bridge, and I understand it's a it's a it's a fan production, and and they're working with so much money. It was it was not a good design of that bridge. Even in the offices in Starfleet, looked way too cramped. Um, the only time it wasn't a cramped looking at uh, set was when it was a fake, you know, CGI set, which then looked fake. Right. Uh, so it was it was hard for me because I I can get claustrophobic from time to time, and looking at some of those scenes, it was like, oh man. I think you mentioned it, and uh, I don't want to take words out of your mouth, but you said something along the lines of um, the Enterprise NX01 bridge was much bigger than this bridge from uh, the archer yeah uh so that was one thing that stuck out to me was even the sets when they were in the caves and stuff it just looked too cramped you know there are always caves in star trek have you noticed this (laughs) it doesn't matter what version it is going all the way back to the original series the animated series next gen ds9 voyager enterprise there are always caves and starfleet personnel always find them (laughs) (laughs) yes they do planet hell (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Planet Cave is what they really ought to call it. Yep. Um, I have to say, the scene where Lexa boards the Icarus to take command again and vaporizes that I believe it's a Nausicaan that's in command. Yes. Yep. Um, is poorly constructed to me. And because I understand the intent, you know, they're, they're looking to show that Lexa is not a Starfleet captain. At least that's how it strikes me. Mm-hmm. You know, she's not just going to tell the guy to get off the ship. You know, he said he's going to vaporize her, so she essentially quick draws on him and vaporizes him first. But the whole thing is in slow motion, and it seems incredibly tacky. Yes. Especially when the phaser beam doesn't look good, and the disintegration and the sound effect that goes along with it are both really poor. Yeah. Um, I noticed several scenes. I don't want to call them slow motion, but did you get the... The the feeling that some of the scenes, it was kind of like, I don't even know how to describe it. It was like kind of slow motion, but not. It was it was very like jumpy. Yeah. I don't know if that's the right word. It's, it's kind of hard to describe. Um, I, I saw that in several scenes and I didn't know if it was just the camera work or if it was done on purpose or, or, or even if it was just the internet connection that I had or something. I don't know. But that I found distracting as well. There are a few scenes where slow-mo was used. And I can only think of one where I think it's used effectively. The rest of them, I don't think it really works. But I think that pacing overall seems to be a problem in this movie. And I think it's because they're trying to go between two separate stories, the one on the Siphon homeworld and the one on Earth. And they don't necessarily intertwine well, not even really at the end. Um, I think that one of the scenes that stood out to me as being the most disjointed is the one in the conference room. So you have this really interesting scene between Renara and Icheb, mm-hmm. you know, where they're talking about, uh, you know, her psychokinetic abilities and, you know, yeah. him having this essential, you know, gauntlet on his arm that he can essentially summon on command. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it goes to rage between Jaro and Garrus. It's almost as if, you know, it's like, oh, that scene is over. Hey, that's our cue. Rage. Yeah. Um, there wasn't really good flow between that, and it didn't really strike me as as propelling the story. And I guess that's how I'm looking at it. Is did that propel the story? Well, maybe a little bit for those two characters, but 
it, it didn't really do anything. Who would you – blame's not the right word, but I'm going to use that word. Who would you blame for something like that, Bill? Do you blame the writing or do we have to blame Tim as the director, which I really don't want to do, but what's your thought on that? I don't know. Um, I, I think part of it is it is perhaps the writing and some of it may be you know the, the direction and editing. I don't really know. Yeah. Um, and this is probably a good time to, to check point and say, you know, we don't make movies, you and I. Exactly. We yeah, are not true. professionals yeah. in the industry. There are yeah. going to be some people out there who go, well, if you think you can do so well, then do this yourselves. And it's exactly. like, well, that's yeah. not what we do. Um, you know, we've been watching Star Trek for a long time individually. Mm-hmm. And we know what Star Trek looks like. Every fan does. And I think that that qualifies everybody to have an opinion, and this just happens to be ours. Um, yep. I probably should have led with that, and it's probably good to state that now. I agree with you 100%. The other thing that you just said that really stands out, and I think it's important from my perspective and I think from your perspective as two people who are uh, uh, or have been Trek fans for so long and know so much about it, to me, to be blunt, this is not Star Trek. I was going to get to that later, but okay. let's talk. No, let's talk about it now. Um, okay. I, I I find myself inclined to agree with you. I mean, when you think about, uh, you know, is a fan production Star Trek? And you and I have watched a bunch of fan productions over the years, independent productions, whatever. And that's ultimately the question I leave myself with at the end. You know, to say, well, I felt this way about it. It was good. It was great. It was. It, it could have been better. Is it Star Trek? And I have to say, it, it it felt more like Star Trek's take on Firefly than Star Trek itself. Because Star Trek has hope. And Star Trek yep. has a spirit of exploration. And yep. Star Trek has, you know, things that we immediately, ident- immediately identify. I, I look at it this way. People say the new J.J. movies aren't Star Trek because they're nothing more than action movies that miss the heart of the original series. And if those aren't Star Trek then this is less so. Yes, that's a very, very good way to, to look at it. And I, I, we've talked about it. I like the J.J. movies. I think that there are many aspects of Star Trek in the, in the J.J. movies. I just can't find myself finding anything with this one that makes me think it is other than, like we said, and I don't want to harp on the same thing over and over again, it's Star Trek in the fact that they brought in a bunch of Star Trek characters that we've seen before. Right. But you're perfectly right. There's no hope. There's no, um, you know, there's no take on the on the sensitive issues of today and turning it into something that is um, something that we can watch and enjoy in a Star Trek universe. Is that going to come down the road with future episodes? Quite possibly. But for this first one, I didn't see anything like that. You know, there are elements that lend themselves to the type of examination that Star Trek does with characters in searching for humanity. And I think that Ichab's torture and conflict is introduced, you know, in that vein. I think it's it's interesting. The fact that they've made him a walking weapon and a, a bit of a super soldier is really an interesting dynamic. And then you add to the fact that he kind of likes the power. But let and, me interrupt you for a second and yeah. say and ask you this. Don't you think that they already touched upon that during Voyager? I think that when he was when he came into the crew, I think that there were some aspects of his character where he tackled that to some extent. So to do it in here, while all that's well and good, it seemed like it 
it, it wasn't anything new that made me think that this was more Star Trek than it was. I think that it provides maybe a better examination here because I never got the sense that he liked it in Voyager. Oh, I don't think so either. But we know he does here because he says he thinks he does. Yeah. And I think that that alone is is an interesting examination. Um, you know, I don't know where they plan on taking that, but, you know, I think that that's probably key to that particular character because now where else is there to go? He's got this super weapon on his arm that apparently can also shield people, which is kind of neat. Yeah, it acts as, pretty cool. It's like a, a tricorder and a communicator and a shield device yep. and a weapon all in one. Um, and then it makes you wonder about the, the ramifications as far as, well, why did section 31 do this and who else has it? Right. There's, there's the possibility there for great stories in the Star Trek vein, but. And that's the key. Yeah. That's the key is, is I'll look, I'll put it this way. I'm disappointed in this first episode. It doesn't mean that I'm hopeful that there's going to get a lot better in future ones. I really hope it does because I want them to succeed. They have a great potential for stories. If we had to base it on what we saw on this one, I'm very concerned. Well, let's take another aspect of this. Since we're talking about characters potentially in search of humanity or or in great conflict. And let's talk about Shri, the Andorian. Mm -hmm. So she's a hacker of sorts. Yep. But in the first scene, we see her forcibly stealing something from someone's brain against their will. And I found myself asking, is that mind rape? Yeah. Is that now okay in the yeah. Star Trek universe? The and under what circumstances is, does she I'm, get to do that? I'm sorry, say that again, Bill? And under what circumstances does she is she forced to employ that? And what are the okay. ramifications for her character? What I think when I thought when I saw that scene, I thought similarly. It's like, oh, okay, so they can just go do this anytime. But in other aspects of deep uh, in Deep Space Nine, we had um, the episode where O'Brien was undercover, and we got to see the real scum of yeah, uh, and, and things like that were happening. Now the guy was breaking into different computers and stealing things, this, that, and the other thing. But I think it lends that this could be going on anywhere in the seediness of what is not Starfleet or the Federation. Um, so that part of it, I could see certainly happening. But it's the first time we've seen it, so it's kind of a shock. Right. I agree. Yeah. You know, I, I think the ramifications you know, or the potential ramifications for that character are are vast. Yeah. Because what happens when that comes back to bite them, you know, yep. the crew? Yeah. And the other thing about it is Chekhov, if I remember correctly, Chekhov chimed in as she was doing this and just seemed to be like, oh, it looks like you're doing something like you've done before, blah, blah, blah. It was kind of like, you know. Casual, well, when you're done, come on into the office. I want to talk to you. Yeah. Hey, you're up to your old tricks. Stop yes. on by when you yep. get a second. <laughs> well, and this makes me wonder about where Chekhov is at. Because there were times in the original series movie where he reflected a little more of the humanity. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, it, 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 with some of the things he did. And, you know, Chekhov's now 143. We have no idea what's happened in between, say, generations and now where the scar came from. Yeah. But what has what has happened to Chekhov to make him this um blase with these tactics? Yep. Because I expect an original series character to have more of a problem with this. Yeah. Now it's again, 
who knows what's going to come down the road. What I see to that is we see it in today's world. He gets somebody who's a, you know, straight as an arrow type person. He gets into a position with his work that forces him to do certain things. And over time, you just get numb to it. Maybe he's been head of Starfleet intelligence for a long time and he's just numb to the fact that all these wrong things are being done and he just goes along with it now. Who knows? But again, goes back to we don't know. We don't have the answers to these questions right. after this first 90 minute film. Well, and the Renegades people have already announced that Walter has said that episode three is the last time he'll play Chekhov. So yep. I thought we're not going to get answers to these. Um, and if they are, it's going to be like the some of the writing on Voyager back 20 years ago. It's going to be a great storyline, and then they're going to realize that they have to wrap it up in five minutes, and it's going to suck. Right. Yeah, right. which I hope doesn't happen. I mean, I want to give I want to give all the all the hope in the world that that our disappointing review of this one is going to change in subsequent episodes coming up, and we'll have good things to talk about. I'm just really nervous. You know, um, I think that two of the strongest characters in Lex's crew, after Gary Graham's character, are killed off like red shirts. <laughs> Garrus and Jarrow. I mean, don't yep. kill the Borg guy with the gauntlet on his arm. Yep. Don't kill the daughter of Khan. Yep, kill the Bajoran because he asked to kill the Cardassian, and then kill the Cardassian when he goes to defend Lexa. They just right. both seem like, you know what it was? They seemed as wasted as Tasha Yar's death to me. Yes. Let me ask you a question about um, the Cardassian. When he was killed, then the next scene, they were being held prisoner and they were tied up by their hands. But you saw him sitting on the ground. Did he look alive to you? Because if I remember, he looked like he was just sitting there. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. Did he not just get his throat slit? I th but I think, obviously he was dead. Yeah, I think his eyes were just open. Okay. You know, I, I, he seemed dead to me. I, I presume he's dead. He was dead to you. <laughs> he's dead, Jim. Um, he's dead, Lexa. Uh, <laughs> and I, I have to... I'm, we're skipping around here because these thoughts yes. just sort of are coming to us. A lot of pop-ups. Yeah, the whole scene, or right after that, um, the scene with Barada and Lexa where he's talking to her, you know, mm -hmm. about what he's going to do, really yeah. kind of reminded me of the scene in any James Bond film where the villain goes on this soliloquy about his plans and <laughs> how there's nothing Bond can do to stop them. And then he leaves the hero with this dim-witted henchman who easily <laughs> defeats the heroes and escapes and gets back to, to, to save the day. That's yeah. exactly what it struck me as. Austin Powers. <laughs> yes. The sharks with the laser beams and the unnecessarily yeah. slow dipping mechanism. <laughs> um, but that whole scene was like, I felt like I'd seen it in Goldfinger. That's or the Deep Space Nine episode that takes place on the holodeck. Right. With Bashir, yeah. Yeah, the army of Bashir. they play on that really well. They really do. Um, Lexa has a series of flashbacks in this movie. Yeah. We see her mother. As you mentioned before, she's this very striking blonde woman. Um, and I'm still left with the question, when did Khan have time to have a child with this lady? Right. And uh, she doesn't look 100 years old to me. No. I mean, maybe she is. <laughs> if anything, it looks like she's on Vasquez Rocks, to be honest. <laughs> it looked like that's where it was filmed. Um, no, I, that's that has got to be answered. And it has to be answered in a believable way. I don't want to hear... Suspended animation. Right. That's the only really thing I could think of, though. What else could it be? Yeah. It's not a time issue. Well, who knows? It could be. Who knows? But uh, I, I – yeah. So one of the, the most painful scenes in the movie to me 
involves Chekhov's great great granddaughter having a bomb in her arm. Yep. And it's got nothing to do with the actors in the scene. Um, it's just the notion of the scene itself. Okay, so there's a proximity trigger on the bomb, and it doesn't arm until it's near Chekhov. Huh? What? How do Section they know 31. this? That's what it is. Section 31 is behind all of this. So a phaser wouldn't cause that thing to detonate, and yet they phaser her, her hand off? They did it higher up. <laughs> and where does Talia beam the hand to? I took that as he just beamed it out into space, sort of like what uh, what um, Cisco and and Jadzia did with the bomb of the Tribble in, in uh, Trials and Tribulations. Uh, <laughs> this scene does nothing for the story. No, it's, the only thing that it did for the story, I think, was earlier they were talking about how she was in one of her first classes, where would she sacrifice herself for the good of the Federation? And I think that scene was her showing for real what she would sacrifice for the good of the Federation. Well, but, That's the only thing I got right. out of that. But it would have been more interesting to show the plot to arm her with the bomb. Oh, I agree. You know, it's a, oh, oh, wait, there's an alarm. Hey, she's a bomb. Let's get rid of her hand. You know, I just, I, 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 I really, I really wanted to like this. I really did. That's why I donated. Say something. Speechless. Speechless. <laughs> You're back to dead air. You can't do that. <laughs> I know I can't do it. It's because I don't I, – I, it's happened how many times since we've been sitting here for 50 minutes talking. You, I don't know what to say. You and know, that's really sad because, A, I always have something to say. And, B, we want to – when we sit down to do these shows, we want to talk about how much we love something. And we just can't with this. And it's it's disappointing. You know, I thought that one of the, the more interesting and layered characters off the bat was Dr. Lucian, as portrayed by Sean Young from Blade Runner and Ace Ventura. Um, I, I, I will say that you don't understand some of the layering until the very end, until you realize that she created Fixer and that Fixer is a hologram. But I don't understand why she can use Shree's mind device to understand what's going on and what has to be done, and Shree can't. Yeah, I. It's something that I've never really, I never really thought about until you just said it. Now I'm trying to piece together what would be a good answer, and I really don't have one. Maybe her, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> don't know. Um, is she human? Has uh, that been Doctor Lucian? Yeah. I don't know. I presume so, but I don't know for sure. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe she's, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Delton or not. I don't even have any idea. So, but it, it, her whole reason for creating Fixer as a hologram is because her original assistant had been killed, you know, doing an experiment. Yes. Yep. It, she creates him out of apparent guilt, I'm guessing. And how is that ethical? And if she created him out of guilt, she just let him die again. Even though she knows that she could just create him, Which, well, again, ethical. True. I mean, she's he. He definitely became more than the sum of his programming, and certainly became more human in air quotes. But what are the ramifications of creating an autonomous hologram that is a duplicate of somebody you know that yeah. died? Yeah. What does that say about 
about her? What does that say about uh, the culture? What does that say about would, science? I would be willing to bet, and I'm, this isn't a dig in any way, shape, or form when I say this. I'd be willing to bet that no one at Renegades even remotely thought of it in that light. And probably not many people would bring it up. It just goes to show that you're on top of things and how you're thinking about these things. Because I certainly did not think of that for an instant. Um, but it brings up a very interesting debate topic, I think. I think so, too. And that's certainly another aspect of that character they could examine. Um, but it, it it almost made me uncomfortable to think about, much like the, uh, the Shri and her mind device. It's like there are some potentially, you know, show-stopping type things here. And I don't think that they got enough play in the movie. This very easily could have been two hours long, and they could have... Yeah. You know, a, a quick yeah. scene of dialogue with some of that, I think, would have gone a long way. Um, but it, it, without the scenes with Picardo, I don't think that some of that would have been framed right because we know that she stole a, a mm. hologram emitter, a, you yep. know, a, a mobile autonomous one. Yep. We know that you know she's been working on it. And he wants her to come back, but yep. she can't because she's disgraced. I mean, those are really the only two purposes that having Robert Picardo in that in that film serves. Well, that, right. and apparently he gets to test out the tactile response. <laughs> if you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, that well, was pretty. I thought that that was. I thought that was a funny part of of this movie. I thought that that was well done. It made me. It made me laugh a little bit. It made me laugh. He really too. wanted to try that thing out, man. <laughs> it's like, hey, P- Picardo's back just in time to have space sex with Sean Young. Awesome. <laughs> Hey, I have one question, and I may just be missing – I may have missed the answer. It was nice to see Grant Imahara in a guest role. Yeah. Um, at the end, when he was obviously found out to be an alien of some kind, Yeah. what what was he? Yeah, exactly. I don't think he was one of uh, the um, uh, siphons no. in disguise of any kind. He was something else, and – we got to wonder if that's going to be something down the road also. Well, Talia killed him too quickly, like Chekhov said. It's like, yeah. well, wait, how, how does this play into it? As soon as I start yep. asking all these questions, he's dead. Yep. Yep. It's like the, um, it's like the first season episode of TNG with the little, uh, the little dudes that crawled up and get into the back of their necks. <laughs> that could have been such an awesome storyline. And it actually is in a bunch of the books, I will say. Um, but again, it, it it would never got it never got discussed again. Hopefully they'll bring this back a little bit so we can get a little bit more about it. So back to Doctor Lucian for a second. So she can just use a communicator to talk to Fixer through dilation wave particles to a different part of the galaxy. Yeah, that was a very big plot hole. I thought, how the heck is that possible? And he just knows how to transport it. <laughs> it's like, well, He's we a hologram. Gotta, we got to transport it out of here. Well, great. <laughs> how do I get an obelisk? Clear across the galaxy. Let me think. Did they use transwarp beaming? Is this Scotty's device from the JJ universe come back to haunt us? Because there was plenty of lens flare. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah, I thought that that was a. I thought that was something that uh, I can't imagine we're the only people who are going to bring that up. No, I I agree with you. I um, and one last Doctor Lucian point. Um, I don't get me wrong. I like the character. But uh, is she allergic to retinax? Because she's wearing eyeglasses the whole movie. It's the 24th century. Good, good continuity there, man, bud. That was good. <laughs> I, uh, I just, I, 
I get it. Whenever you, you you bring her up, and whenever you bring her up, I think of the for some reason the scenes popping in my head on the bridge, and I go back to it. That bridge on the Icar- on the Icarus Icarus. I'm not sure how Icarus. you want to pronounce it. Icarus. It's so cramped and small, and it just does not look like a good bridge. But all of the sets are cramped and small. Yeah, even the I know. Uh, it's on uh, on Rule Seven at the beginning of the movie. You know when the uh, siphons killed the uh, the mining colonists. Yep. Yep. Um, that looks small. There's not green, yes. enough green screen in the world to help that that look. Yep. Yep. Um, I think it's true of, of all of the sets for the most part. The biggest set seemed to be Chekhov's office, which I suppose if you and looked even, to be 143 years old, there were some perks. But even that was small. Yeah. Look at the president's office in in uh, Deep Space Nine. Right. That's just like huge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I. I but, we we said it we said it all through this podcast. I don't want to bash it to pieces because there were things that we liked, but unfortunately we got to be honest and and everybody's a, everybody's entitled to an opinion. I know that there are tons of people that have loved it because I've yeah. been reading about the reviews, people that love it, and that's awesome. I want to love this, but this first incarnation of Renegades, I can't. Um, I, I keep coming back to the phrase: your mileage may vary. Um, we didn't necessarily like it as much. Others do. Mm-hmm. You know, ultimately, we're going to post the full movie. You know, in the in the post of this podcast on our website, so that yep. people don't have to go anywhere to find it, or you can get it on YouTube, or you can go to the Star Trek Renegades website. But at least watch it and draw your own conclusion. You may agree with some of our stuff. Um, you may not, yep. <laughs> and that's fine. Here's, here's here's something that I'll I'll compare it to and this is going to be you're probably going to laugh or make some comment because you're bill i can like i i am looking forward literally i am actually looking forward to what the next one is going to be because i want to see if they can if they can fix this and that's different for me because i look at everybody talked about how great the hunger games was i watched the first hunger games movie i will never watch any of the other ones i was so I thought that was so bad, the first Hunger Games movie, that no matter how many people tell me how great they are, I won't watch the other ones. Complete opposite with this. I didn't like this one. I will watch the next ones because I want to see if they can fix it. Interesting. I actually liked the first Hunger Games movie for what it's worth. I did not like it at all. That, that could be a whole other show on all on its own. I was so <laughs> disappointed with that. There was only one good thing to the Hunger Games movie, I thought. And? That's Jen. <laughs> oh, God. Why do I ask? I know the answer to these things. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I thought that the best scene of the movie was Lex's fight with Barada, but it was over way too quickly. I think we got a sense of how ruthless she can be, and mm-hmm. I think that's probably in her genes, in her blood. But we also get a bit of her backstory, and I think it's the point where she's the most interesting in this movie, but I think it might have come a little bit too late. We needed some of this exposition ahead of time um, because I felt like it was almost wasted at the end. I agree. I've, you and I have had a little bit of disagreement over what we think of this character. I am not very positive on on uh, the Lexa character. I thought that it was uh, her acting was very cardboardish um, and was not very believable. But as you pointed out to me, that is not necessarily Adrian's fault. It's the writing's fault. 
And the one time where that did not happen was during that fight scene. And, and I will agree with you that. I will definitely say that that was a much better uh, look into what she can possibly do with this character. You know, we know Adrian Wilkinson can act because we've seen her act. Yep. We know she can do other things. And we yep. know she can do them well. So I think that the failings of Lexa lie mainly in the way she's written. Mm-hmm. Because I think that... I, I do think that Adrian brought layers to the character, whatever layers they were there to, to provide. And unfortunately, you don't get to start peeling that back until the very last scene um, with Barada. And I, I think that that, I think that gives the character short shrift to some degree. It's funny that you said that that scene was over too quickly because you would have thought it would have taken longer because even that, a lot of it was in slow motion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, nobody, no character in this film has any urgency. <laughs> okay, so Earth has been cut off from the sun. It's going to get really cold really fast. And honestly, I think probably a lot quicker than they say it will in the movie. But that's just me. Barada didn't just destroy Earth. He's going out of his way to inflict pain. And he's going to freeze yeah. everybody, literally. And yep. nobody seems really urgent about no. that. No. It's like, well, yeah, this we got about 10 minutes till the Earth's going to blow up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we've only got 10 minutes to save the world let's uh let's do something something will work in fact lexa even says that at some point on the <laughs> siphon home world when they're trying to to blow up the uh, the obelisk or whatever it yes. is I uh, the, we'll what figure it something out yeah <laughs> <laughs> i feel like that should be the subtitle to, to renegades star trek renegades <laughs> we'll figure something out <laughs> we'll send that over to them <laughs> yeah no i have a feeling they're not going to take our emails after no, this. no i don't think they're going to take our calls either <laughs> <laughs> um i have i have a pet peeve oh you so, i know right so there's a scene in the garden at starfleet academy between chekhov and his great-great-granddaughter mm-hmm. and before we get to the dialogue um, they show a memorial and they label it the Admiral Nimoy Memorial. Yes. And now I totally understand that they were trying to provide a respectful nod to Leonard Nimoy by labeling yep. it that. But honestly, I think an in memoriam title card would have been more appropriate because they've just stepped outside of the Star Trek universe. Yes. Um, going out of your way to point out that that's the Admiral Nimoy Memorial just doesn't fit. Right. I I understand what they were trying to do. It's a nice gesture, but it it's an, another one of those things that takes you out of the movie. It would have been the similar to if, if the ship was not the USS Archer, but was the USS Nimoy. There was no Nimoy character in Star Trek. Right. So, it, yeah, I I remember you mentioning that to me because you had uh, um, had a couple glimpses of it before we got, I got to watch the, when it was comp- fully released and you said, wait till that garden scene. And you tell me if that bothers you as much as it does me or something like that. Yeah. And you're, you was, I was like, Admiral, what? Totally understand. Like you said, why they did it, of course, uh, with Leonard's passing. But I think, I think at the very beginning, just, you know, uh, something in memoriam would have been much better. Yeah, no, I agree with that. My, um, the the last point I want to bring up because I know that we're we're running short on time is um the Icarus could easily dispatch a Klingon battle cruiser and cut it in half, <laughs> I mean without even blinking, but they can barely hold off a small Federation starship. That doesn't make any sense to me. Do you think it was a small ship? 
it kind of looked like it looked a lot like Voyager to me. Well, still, I mean, maybe it was small because the bridge was the size of a bathroom, but um, but Voyager is small. Voyager's well, only got a crew you, of over two hundred people. Yeah, but when you're comparing it to what the Enterprise E? No, compared compared to the USS Enterprise, no bloody A, B, C, or D. Okay. Four hundred and thirty people aboard. The Voyager is a much smaller ship. Okay, that's right. Yep. But you know, so they can cut a Klingon battle cruiser in half, literally. Because we saw they don't it. have as good shields. I just. <laughs> yeah, that's so, what it is. Okay, so the good we thought that there were some really good, solid performances by individuals. Yep. Um, even though the material may have not served them as well as it should have at times. The yep. visual effects as far as ships and combat were, were good. I enjoy, yep. I thought they were really well done. Um, and there were some nuggets left for future episodes that provide some really, really good points of plots if they decide to develop them. Is that fair? Yes. I would say that what I was going to say, which is kind of what you just said, the potential, I will say, is a positive. Yeah. But – it's got to be done better. The, the the potential for what they can do in future episodes is, I think, the thing that makes me want to watch the next ones. But they have to be able to do things better, and they have to be able to fix some of the things that they did with this first episode. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think there's a lot to rework. Um, I, I think that there are... I think that if they concentrate on more targeted stories... I think that they'll have some success. Yeah. I think that the bouncing back and forth between Earth and the Siphon homeworld really kind of hurt this because yeah. uh, they were sort of dividing and conquering, and I don't think they ever conquered, if yeah. that makes sense. I will be very interested to see what happens in episode three with Walter's swan song and the final playing of, of Chekhov. How is it going to happen? Is it going to be just retirement? Is it going to be a death? Is it going to be something? And – uh, I hope it is done better than Admiral Paris's death in this episode. I hope so too. Well, honestly, I thought that Walter had finished playing Chekhov back when he did Star oh, Trek yeah. New Voyages Phase 2. I think yeah. the episode was uh, To Serve All My Days. I might have that title wrong because it's been a while since I've watched it. I thought that that was the perfect swan song to Chekhov. I thought he was done. Apparently mm-hmm. not. Yep. Um, so so that, uh, that kind of wraps our thoughts on Star Trek Renegades. We understand that some of you may feel very differently, and we respect mm-hmm. that. Um, yep. If you have divergent viewpoints or you want to school us on something, Dan, how can people get in touch with us? Yeah, and actually, this is one of those situations where I would really hope that people will reach out to us some way uh, and any of the ways that you can contact us to let us know what you think. Because like Bill said, there are going to be people that are very different in our thoughts of it, and that we want to hear that. We like the uh, we like uh, hearing these uh, opinions. So uh, on Twitter, Facebook, and Skype, our handle is Trek Geeks. Uh, you can send us an email at trekgeeks at starfleet.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 508-784-1701. Uh, if you want to send an individual tweet to Bill, his handle is at TrekGeekBill, and my handle is at DCDDS9. Uh, please remember that any comments or messages you leave us uh, may be used in a future episode as well. Okay, and we all, of course, we want to thank <laughs> our good friends with Five Year Mission. 
They are every ounce of music you hear on the Trek Geeks podcast, and they are so kind to let us use it. We hope you go out and buy their Spock's Brain album if you haven't done so already. And year one and year two and year three and the trouble with tribbles and pretty much everything they do because it ought to be on your iPod and in your library. That's all we're saying. Uh, but that's a <laughs> fiveyearmission.net. Fark would be very impressed if you did that. I guarantee it. And that doesn't happen often. Fark is usually not impressed. <laughs> he really isn't. It takes a lot to impress that guy. God, I'm working overtime. <laughs> You're doing a great job, though, Bill. Uh, I'm barely barely making it by. But, uh, but anyway, we thank you all for downloading and listening to episode 29. This was 29, right? I've already 29. Forgot. Two-niner. Two ni- Did I just hear a niner in there? <laughs> Yes, sir. <laughs> we'll be back next week with episode 30. We hope to have a really great discussion for you next week. We might cross some universes, if I'm correct, Dan. Oh, the force is strong in this one. Uh, I Resistance is futile. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> oh. But I know, see what I did there? But for now, we, uh, we hope you all live long and prosper. You know what's good? We no. didn't have time for Stump the Geek. Ha! Bye! Coconut! Hi. Hello. How you doing? Good. What's uh what's what's new? I hi. Hello. What what you got there? You know, before Star Trek Enterprise, none of the Star Trek shows had theme songs with words. Until now. (laughs) So I present to you Star Trek Deep Space Nine, the theme song with words. Not lyrics. No! <laughs> no, not lyrics, but words. Use your words, Dan. Oh. <laughs> well, phone's ringing. <laughs> One ringy dingy. So, uh, I just got done watching Bat Dad. <laughs> I'm going to do that for the podcast. No, you're not. Bill, it's time to start the podcast. <laughs> Bill, <laughs> where is he? Like <laughs> our review. <laughs> <laughs> nothing like uh, nothing like giving away the spoiler. You know? <laughs> oh, I didn't say what review. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm just uh, that guy's funny. This the one that I saw was his wife was in all of these. Yeah, yeah. And her name was Jen. <laughs> Jen. <laughs> Is that the one that Mumphrey sent us the other day? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it looks like you've been doing squats. <laughs> <laughs> I love how she would jump every single time he did it. That was great. I jumped when you did it just now. <laughs> Jen, wake up! I've got coffee <laughs> <laughs> i have coffee too 
kudos to the bat dad. I have a new twisted tea. It is bourbon barrel. So you lied? I don't have coffee. You that said you had coffee. Dad. You said, but it was you, bad dad. It was bad dad. But you held up your cup and said, I have coffee. That's what he did. He pretended he, he did. He held up coffee for Jen. Jen! <laughs> so now your story's changing. Okay. I see what it's going to be. Bill! I what? have bourbon barrel. <laughs> doesn't, Is that better? It doesn't quite hold the same effect when you're holding up a Star Trek iced coffee mug. <laughs> Like a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Some stuff happened. (laughs) God. That is some funny stuff. That is. Okay. All right.